Hello, and welcome to the Mint Gold Dust Podcast. My name is Peter Sparacino, and today we're talking with Vancouver-based artist Stuart Ward. Stuart has a long background in creating mesmerizing experiences and actually started his own experiential design studio a number of years ago to collaborate with the world's largest brands with his unique aesthetic. However, the pandemic shuttered his live in-person business and gave him the unrequested gift of time to return to his artistic roots and the ability to create without timelines, limitations, or client requests. Today, he is an incredibly inventive and prolific crypto artist who makes novel use of forms and style. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Stuart Ward, um, amazing artist uh, that we have the pleasure to um, host uh, in our podcast. Um, I had a conversation with him a few days ago, and um, and also I received his proposal for um, Mingle Dust, um, the proposal for his art piece, and I got very uh, curious about that. Um, he presented such an uh, interesting story, and he's talking about saloons. Uh, and Stuart, you mentioned that I'm going to quote uh, from your uh, email, a signifier of a prosperous and established saloon, especially before the railroads were built, was a large mirror behind the bar, usually inside an elaborate frame with gold leaf decorative forms. I, you just got my attention. Uh, can you elaborate on this and uh, where do you see this artwork going? Sure, sure. Um, nice to see you again. Um, yeah, it's a. I guess to to speak about the to speak about these bar frames. I guess the there's this sort of history of um, of migration westwards into the uh, into the unknown, uh, or at least the unknown to the people who were who were traveling, and when they arrived somewhere, they would set up like a tent camp or something. And eventually sometimes those places became towns. Um, but they would be, they would have this sort of inspiration of, um, of making their town sort of like a replica of where they had, where they had come from. Um, so they were making, um, they were making, Sorry, just one second, please. Uh, they were making, uh, they were trying to replicate what their um, what their town could be if it were, you know, back in Europe or back on the East Coast or something. So they were, uh, they were doing the best they could to make things seem fancy, even though there was no like direct link other than what was connected inside of somebody's memory. Um, so I guess it's the, one of the parallels would be, um, have you ever seen those drawings of the um, African animals drawn by the 15th century? I guess it might be a little bit later. Um, uh, European artists where the European artists had never been to Africa and they'd never seen these animals. <laughs> they were just explained what they looked like. Hmm. Um, so, so they did the best they could to create a sort of an aesthetic sense. 
but they couldn't quite do it because they were just being told like second, third hand information. And I think there's this sort of evolution of culture as you head further like west across North America um, by this like pioneering spirit where, you know, building this fancy bar room, you know, they would build churches and bar rooms as they, as they went further west. Building this uh, saloon, they wanted to create this sort of aesthetic of some, some place that maybe the people who were going had never even been. Um, and I, ref I refer to the mirror because the mirror behind the bar was the thing that, the, you know, the bartender could see the, it served a purpose because the, the bartender could see what was going on when he was facing the bar. But more importantly, it was a signifier of, well, this is an established joint because that mirror had to get hauled by wagon all the way from the East Coast or all the way from like wherever mirrors were made. <laughs> and like if, it, it, it would be a long journey. Imagine taking, imagine not breaking a mirror on a like a bumpy wagon track for a thousand, <laughs> thousand kilometers. So there's this sort of like signifier of this is, this is the establishment, this is wealth, this is the place. But as that journey went further and further and the, the distance between the, the places where things were made and the places where things were presented got further, you know, places along the way started replicating those general styles themselves without ever having had the, um, without having had the experience of seeing the original. So the, it's sort of like the Baudrillard idea of simulacra and simulation where you end up making something that is a simulation of an original where the original in the mind of the maker doesn't even exist anymore or is only such a far off and like abstract concept that it becomes yeah. a new style. So is, is that how you see your whole approach to crypto art or specifically this Genesis piece? Well, I think that, um, I think that that idea sort of fits deeply into, into the possibility of creating something new because we've left behind the traditional salon style schools of learning to paint and draw. Like, you know, you don't have to draw in charcoal for two years before you can pick up a paintbrush. Anybody can just go and either download or buy the software and watch some tutorials and get started. That that like, oh, you can't be an artist unless you have sort of gatekeeping in crypto art has really, really disappeared. And there's an opportunity for like a total reinvention of total reinvention of what what the definitions and what the possibilities are as a result of that um, uh, as, as that reinvention is the further the further west we go. So, um, but crypto art is not you didn't you're not one of those. You just didn't download the tools and start crypto art. You have a longer history before that. Correct. So how did your previous history funnel into crypto art? Because it's not, you know, there's learning the tools and then 
learning what makes you tick and how that uh, works into your art. So how did that get changed or transformed or maybe crypto art just gave you a bigger platform to work on? Yeah, definitely. There is the bigger platform idea. One of the, one of the important, one of the important bits that uh, crypto art provides is that the finished product, I guess product isn't the right word, but the finished art is the digital file where previously, so I, I was talking with the, um, with another artist, Malcolm Levy, more than a year ago, or maybe, sorry, I was talking with the artist Malcolm Levy, um, he's a friend of mine, I was talking this spring, and we were talking about how prior to NFT art, if you wanted to sell digital art, you had to embed it in something else or connect it with something else because the possibility of people buying just like the USB or, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to buy this. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you know, you turn change the channel. Where did the art go? And there was this sort of like, okay, you want to make digital art. Okay, you're going to put it into a festival and get paid as a performer in the festival. You want to make digital art, you're going to put it into a frame and you're going to sell the art inside the frame or you're going to make physical right. prints or you're going to make you know like fancy metallic holofoil prints and so um, something that people feel comfortable buying is what you're saying yeah that, that we don't have yeah. to translate the digital art into something right. else in order to make it possible yeah. for the artist to make a living doing it yeah so so the like the intent of the artist can remain true to their vision they don't have to adapt their media into making it something that can be right. They don't have to go the extra step as marketer as well. You know, or that's right. That's right. Like, yeah. Yeah. If you're making an animation, you'd have to like turn it into a still to, to be able to print it. And there's a little bit of loss of intent or loss of like the original vision. And the same thing right. goes with like, Oh, we're going to project this onto a, uh, onto a large screen at a, at a festival like a digital arts festival where, but the original idea was the animation and the content, not the scale and the signifier of what it means to be projecting work into a large, uh, large space. And um, so, but you worked like you have been working with technology before uh, you entered the, the crypto art space. I mean, for, for a long time. Um, and, um, I know that uh, you have you used to have an experiential design studio. Um, let's just talk about your art practice, like your actual art practice. Um, how would you describe it? And the crypto art change anything uh, like concerning the actual art practice for you? Sure, um, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, that um, I I guess going all the way back. Um, I discovered VJing, video jockeying, um, back in, I think it was 2006. So this was, you know, when you had a, your loops were what, like 320 by 240 or 640, 480. And I discovered some software and, you know, you immediately discovered the limitations of like, okay, well, I can play like two, maybe three clips layering them over each other. And it started out as, okay, well, 
oh, I've got the performance of the cafe. And then it's like, oh, I got the performance of the small nightclub. And then it's like, oh, the performance of the big nightclub. And then that evolved into, oh, okay, I'm doing show control at fashion shows and helping make the content for that. And it turned into, well, it, it, it turned into that gray area of, well, this isn't art anymore. This is like brand solving brand problems. And then there's some more personal works that are art and blurring all of those lines very, in a, in a very, um, I guess you're, I guess it wasn't really focusing on like, well, is this art? It's more of like, is this interesting? Um, but then everything changed. I think in 2009, I saw projection mapping. I'm like, wow, this is, this is going to be transformative when, when this starts getting picked up and a lot more people start doing it. And in 2009, there was no software to help you do it. You had to sort of figure it out. Um, but then within a couple of years, it, it started uh, started becoming a lot more possible. Um, I, so I started a, um, an experiential design business in 2011 after doing this DJing work and evolving that from smaller shows to larger shows. I did that in Tokyo and then moved back to Canada did a did a year of study on animation and 3D for the specific purpose of getting more more in depth into um, into projection mapping and you know projection mapping evolved into interactive technology creating things that reacted to sensors whether it was projections or whether it was LED lights or sculptural things and then the the pieces evolved. You know, it was looking back on it, you could perhaps say that it was kind of silly to think about opening a projection mapping based business in Canada, especially mm -hmm. Western Canada, um, because projection mapping is mostly shown at night and because Canadian exhibitions are mostly in the summertime and our sunsets in the summertime aren't till 9 30, 10 o'clock. If you're being part of a projection mapping festival, it's only going to be an hour long, maybe. <laughs> so maybe Canada wasn't the right place to do it, especially for those reasons. Um, but, you know, we had some interesting projects along the way. Um, we did some interesting, some interesting work with indoor stuff. We did some things with festivals. We did some things with cultural events. And then, of course, with, uh, with brands and marketing projects. Um, and almost everything that we were doing was event-based. And then in February 2020, everything disappeared. Everything shut down. Yeah. And, and that was that. Um, and, you know, we'd had, we had a pretty exciting lineup of projects coming down the pipe for, for 2020. And one by one, they all said, hey, sorry, yep. this is all done. And, you know, everybody's got that story of what happened to them during COVID. And I mean, it's still happening. But you didn't, you didn't find any ways to translate that experience to a like virtual? Well, I mean, I have some, some friends that were in like sound production and lighting and video production and their work translated to like digital experiences. 
um, where we were sort of known for that like IRL thing. And throughout this whole process, I'd still been making digital art from the from the idea of making animations and making things, and you know, basically just feeding an Instagram. <laughs> um, and during during COVID, it was like, okay, well, everything's shut down. I have a chance to really think about what what it is I want to be doing. And then I, you know, I had some, you know, there's death in the family and it's like well you know life is short what do you want to be doing with yourself and you know do you want to like everybody's like oh let's get back to normal it's like no normal is exactly what was wrecking our planet we don't want to be getting back to what normal was we want to be getting back to something new and let's redefine that we have a a very unique opportunity during a shutdown to get together and figure it out figure out what it is we want to get back to and normal isn't it because normal wasn't working for a large percentage of the population and definitely not working for our environment and you know places like Iceland got into like the, the three day there's sort of the four day work week and you know there's a lot of experiments of what's possible and in right, my case good came out of it. Yeah. yeah yeah in in my case the silver lining um uh, outside of spending more time with the uh, with family, the silver lining in my case was saying, "Okay, let's make some art. Let's make more art." And while I was making it, uh, a friend of mine, or a person who's now a friend of mine, discovered my work on Instagram and sent me a message. And was like, "Hey, how do, how are you making how are you making this like anti counterfeit line art?" Um, I've never seen anybody because he, he's like a currency designer and he's like, well, how are you doing this? Where did you get your training? Where have you made currencies? It's like, no, I just looked at passports and with a magnifying glass and figured it out. <laughs> so anyway, we became, we became friends and he said, well, Hey, I, I make my money with, or make a living with, um, crypto art. Have you heard of this? And I'm like, well, vaguely. So he took me on like a hour long screen share of what he was doing. This was back in like October, October of 2020, early okay. November maybe. So I, I, I guess you could say that I was in it before it was cool. Um, uh, you yeah, can say that. Yes, before, before, <laughs> before <laughs> in the era before Christ or before Christus, as I usually say. Yeah, before the before. The, before that wave yeah. of shield me art <laughs> and that other wave of can I have a foundation invite? Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I set up some, some things back in October and I got approved on another platform for, for sales in February and then things accelerated from there. And I met some really interesting people along the way and made some great friends and, there's some fantastic artists and working on some collaborations and there's some, I mean, what's really interesting is the, um, that space between crypto investor and art collector and how that's transforming the sort of perception of like what, what decisions are made for like valuing art. I guess it's, it, there's some 
tricky topics in there and there's some difficult conversations about like art as investment tool versus art as expression but i think the whole space is just fascinating and interesting and you know there's thousands of things to learn and there's new things to learn every day but i mean art has always been a store of value correct i mean even traditional art so it's kind of like a you know stamp of legitimacy that now crypto art has the same status right would you say yeah yeah but def definitely I've, I've also in some discussions have, have been hearing these these topics of like okay well your your next piece should sell for more than the last piece and it's like well who's <laughs> to say it? you know it's sort of like if you're yeah. moving your floor it's up perpetually it. it's like well okay is that the same thing for a painter like they made a painting and maybe this painting isn't objectively uh, 105% better than the last painting and so it sells for right. less or maybe it's a smaller painting and it sells for less yeah you know because the size of paintings helps store the value for maybe the the scale of the canvas can hold that intangible concept um but the uh i, I think it's also the sorry go ahead no no go ahead i was just gonna say it's also the pace of it you know when you look at an artist full body of work you know there's a couple even the greatest artists ever i'm talking about on all mediums you have all the high points, then there's kind of the filler stuff as well. And, you know, when we're in the middle of it, I think people that gets lost on people sometimes, you know, it's not like every work that comes out. Um, I'm sorry, all your stuff is great, but I'm just saying for the, for like all the, you know, just as how people create. So I think there's when we're in the middle of things, there's kind of unrealistic expectations from the outside where from the artist perspective, you know, you're putting things out and it's all part of your, process right and i mean i i'm not sure all my stuff is great that i made um i've made 62 pieces this year which is as fruitful a year as i've ever had and i've and i've i think 19 of them have made it to the public realm um where right. where of those 19 you could go through them and make a an hierarchy of order of saying okay this one these five are the best and these five are second best and then you know on the way down and if you and they theoretically according to crypto investors should all be going up in value and pushing the floor <laughs> so if you release a piece in the bottom of the 19 after the after the first 18 um then people are like well why is this one less from a crypto art perspective and you know like the time frame should be stretched a lot longer but the people who are right. coming in from like crypto investment perspective don't see it that way yeah but i think i think the whole space is very interesting because you're getting new perspectives yeah i mean what you say is very interesting because like the example that you um we're talking about we like painters because i remember we had this conversation and you said you know like maybe the last artwork that i made is not my best artwork but it's not judged by size it's not judged by like any other factor and so everybody is expecting for me to always make the best artwork uh that's very interesting and, and i remember that we also talked about the fact that if you don't sell it in 24 hours, uh, you know, there's another expectation from uh, crypto investors, like you have to 
make your best, you have to go up in quotation and you have to sell it in like 24 hours while uh, this is not required in the, let's say, traditional artwork. This is very interesting. And yes, it is. I mean, I agree with you that it's interesting to uh, be part of the new this new space with all these new things uh, and new perspectives. Uh, but somehow there are still, I mean, I don't know, art is art, right? And it sh still should be treated as art, not just as an investment. Because otherwise, I also mm -hmm. agree with Peter. It's like it is, it's always been an investment. This is just a little bit yeah. too stretched. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I agree. I think I think what will happen in the next period of time is that as the more traditional art investors, because the first people on board weren't art investors, they were crypto art people or crypto people. Yeah. Um, and as, as the more traditional art scene adopts the technology and comes on board and discovers this whole, um, this whole universe, um, I think that things will become more like they were in the traditional art world because that's the expectations that they bring rather than their decades of collecting and yeah. You viewing it like traditional art collecting, their decades of experience aren't going to suddenly shift to adapt to like, oh, I got to make a bid within 24 hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's already it's already happening actually. Uh, already many changes are happening in the space since when the art world uh, came in. Um, right. But yeah, but so just because we want to talk about art. Um, I didn't ask you like about um, like your art pieces specifically. So your work, uh, you know, you work a lot with forms, uh, and I would like for you to tell us what is, you know, what do you think that is form and what is reality, what is visible and what is invisible, what is known and what is unknown. Just tell us a little about your pieces. Sure. I guess one one quick thing to say before we. Uh before we jump into that, I had this one more really fascinating comment uh, or heard a really fascinating comment about art investment from somebody who had come from the traditional world and they were suggesting that NFT art was so much easier to view than traditional art because you don't have to go to a um, um, one, of the, one of the customs broker houses where people store their art. The, I can't remember the name of it. Um, the, where they store their physical art in like secure locations that are sort of put them perpetually in transit and then they aren't obligated to tax. Oh, like in Swin oh. Switzerland, like the, yeah. the, sto the storage. Like yeah. Yeah. That they're like, oh, NFT art is so much easier to view your art because you don't have to like book a session to go down and get your painting out of like a secure vault. Wow. <laughs> I, I never really thought about it that way, but yes, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> well, so you don't have um, to go, I mean, before the storages, you don't have to go to a museum. Freeports, yes, Freeports. Free port. Yeah, Freeport, yeah. 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 You don't have to go all the way down to a Freeport to see But not even work. to a gallery or to a museum, to anywhere. Right, yeah. It's it, like the original is, you know, on your phone or on your 
computer or wherever you want to be displaying it or looking at it. So, so this person who was making the comment, they were saying because it's so much easier to view, it's going to be more popular. Yes. Or yes. Okay. That the as the traditional art world merges with the NFT space, they they thought personally that it was a lot easier to see their work. Where I'd seen it almost the other way around, where it's like, okay, well, you, you it's harder to display because you have to go and find the, the <laughs> yeah. right display. But for them, it's like, no, you can look at your art, check it out, rather than making a. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that people kept their art collections in their homes or in their businesses, but no, they keep them in Freeports. No, that makes sense. That's why I ne never away. thought about this because I always thought about yeah how difficult it is to showcase and see crypto art, but it, that's actually true. Yeah, yeah, we have, I yeah, we have it. Uh, I guess when you're thinking in like the the top end of, of art collecting, we have it backwards. Um, yeah. Okay, forums, forums. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I guess, do we, where do we start with looking at forums? I guess one of the, I, I was in the, was it the art museum in Chicago? Um, Back in 2001, I was in university, and I somehow managed to get to Chicago to see the... Um... Oh, I remember now. Um, my mom flew me to Chicago with her so that we could go and see the Van Gogh Gauguin exhibition where they brought paintings together that hadn't been together since they were painted. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And... Well, we, there's a culture to her. My mom's a retired archaeologist, so you know I grew up surrounded by art and archaeology mm. books, and I think that and you know, I think that has a quite a significant influence on my art practice. Um, but we were in the Chicago Art Museum, and I was being an art student there with my sketchbook, um, <laughs> as you do, um, and I was drawing some things in the excuse me, in the uh, Latin Latin American, like pre-Columbian uh, section of the museum, I was looking at some Maya or some Aztec art. And I was looking at their decorative forms that they were using to not quite fill space. I mean, there's a purpose to it. I'm not sure what the purpose was, but I was looking at their decorative forms. And then a couple hours later, I was in the um, Asian art section of the gallery, and I was looking at some decorative forms in Chinese sculpture and like, oh my goodness, they're using the same general shapes. And, and you end up in this question of like, is this like, um, is good design or is a good form or like a good shape? Is that like an innate knowledge in humanity? Because these cultures, did not have contact with each other while they were making their work. Right. So it was like, is this deeper than our, than our own selves? Is it like subcultural? Um, where a culture might discover a form that was like innate to humanity in a, like an even deeper level. And I think, I think Jung talks about, some of that with like the art as it the archetypes of the unknown or the archetypes of the unconscious. Um, yeah. So are there are there archetypes of form that we that we collectively can find and discover like 
within ourselves or within our culture that that are collectively known to be good or collectively known to be aesthetic. There's this um, really interesting book, a researcher in the United States wrote a book called Neuroaesthetics, which talks about like what's going on in your brain during its aesthetic experiences and talks about it from an evolutionary perspective with like, well, what, why did we evolve to have this sense of aesthetic? He didn't go into this like archetypes of form, but like, well, why, why does our, why does our sensibility even care about wanting to look at art or about wanting to see? Right. Like what, like why, why do things resonate? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, it was, it ended up being an art book with a, central argument was the idea of setting if you set something free from restrictions of needing to survive it can develop other like other senses of beauty so for example there's like a uh there's a bird in asia that's been in captivity for like a couple thousand years where the wild version has a squawking a squawk and it's kept for its plumage where the wild version has this squawk like a breeding squawk and the one that's kept in captivity has developed a beautiful song because it wasn't restricted of right. like needing to squawk to survive, like to squawk. But to then the it was, it was also because I read about this recently with puppy eyes too. They put uh, dogs in captivity developed extra muscles around their eyes. So they look cute. And those are the ones that are selected for. So it's like that bird, you know, they, there's the one with a terrible song and one that has a bit of a nicer song. Well, and then over time right. it evolves into a, well, they, yeah. they selected them for their feathers, but the song came along, oh, okay. the That's, song yeah. came along for the ride. So the song emerged out of not being restricted into needing to make it for breeding. Yeah. So, right. so maybe art came along for the ride when we set ourselves free from, or enslaved ourselves into hunt out of hunter gatherer into an agrarian lifestyle and we had a surplus right. of food um we had the opportunity to be thinking about things beyond where do we get our next piece of food and started yeah. developing this uh, aesthetic sense but to go back to the idea of forms if you draw a curvy line on a piece of paper and you draw another curvy line on the on another piece of paper and put them up next to each other one sort of feels better than the other, which is really strange. It's like, well, how do we know that? Like, it's not like it's this one's going to be better for us. There's not, there's no like benefit to knowing which one is better that I can mm -hmm. see immediately. Um, but we sort of have this the innate knowledge. Maybe you've seen that picture of the the company, or I think it was a designer was selected to come up with the Instagram logo back when it was the original Instagram logo. Um, and he had like 50 different like um, calligraphic lines of the, of the text. And he was in the process okay. of selecting which one looked best. And it's like, okay, well, you need to put two up on the wall. It's like, well, there's very slight differences, but one feels more right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, how, that's sort of partially trained by spending decades looking at good design and good form, but it's also something that becomes innate, where the ability to select which one is 
if they're both quite good, the ability to select which one is better becomes something that is probably done with training. But if you've got a bad one and a, and a good one, I think anybody can see that. And maybe that's why some a lot of people say, oh, this is really good art, or I love this, or this really speaks to me, even if you don't have any art, like creation training or aesthetics training. Right. So actually this leads in uh, this discussion of like innate, um, uh, just, yeah, innate sense and instinct, like trained instinct and why things appear the way they are leads very naturally into our platform question for you, which is what is gold dust to you? Well, I think, I think that, uh, Giselle Flores um, said it quite nicely. I looked at the write-ups on the website and, you know, I can't think of a better answer than hers of saying it's the possibility of creation. Um, that her, her answer of the, it's the possibility of creation where it explores the idea of like dust can be, uh, you know, melted down and formed into anything. There's a, like gold dust there's a infinite possibilities of what it can become and um but i think there's there's something more to gold that we aren't you know like gold as the store of value and has been for thousands of years and there i think there's something interesting there's like another story to it that like we see it, you know, it's an inert metal, so it doesn't react and you don't lose it and it doesn't go away and it doesn't corrode and it just stays as gold. And there's that value because it doesn't change. But I think there's something, you know, else to it more in a, like a symbolic way that, you know, there are other metals that are, you know, don't corrode as well. But I think there's something to the, like the sheen and the, the gold color, like the those qualities that are linked symbolically to something beyond ourselves as well, um, where I guess it I guess it could be paralleled with this idea of uh, gemstones um, and spirit worlds, where in a, from an anthropological sense, cultures that have developed Sorry, let me start that over again. Cultures that have not developed um, glass and gemstones and crystal uh, technology talk mm -hmm. about their spirit world as being a world of, fl of vibrant flowers and plants. <laughs> but cultures that have developed or had or have traded to get gemstones and crystals and um, cut glass talk about their spirit world as a place of adorned with gemstones and and crystals and cut glass so I wonder if there's something to the spirit world related to gold because of the like the lustrous qualities that gives it value beyond its its inert qualities where we have this affinity for it because it's connected to our like you know deepest subforms of our of our innate sense of what the spirit world would be and i think 
you know, you know, you got to toot your own horn a little bit in the in the art space, where if you're working in digital art, you have an even, you have a better opportunity to arrive at the impossibility of depicting the spirit world because you're working with tools that can help you express closer to the impossible. Thanks again for joining us on the Mink Goldust podcast. And thanks again to Stuart Ward for being here and sharing his incredible insight and art. Stuart is one of Mink Goldust's eight Genesis artists who are each creating an art piece centered around the theme of gold dust. All their pieces will premiere on the Mink Goldust website, minkgoldust.com, at the Mink Goldust launch. Thanks again, and we will catch you next time.